Dealing with Christians in the state, um, we started out looking at the book of Proverbs to see that there's a lot in the book of Proverbs that gives us wisdom in our interaction uh, with the government that we are under. Um, it's kind of interesting, and there's a lot more than on this page here. Uh, you see a bunch of little Proverbs, Proverbs, Proverbs. Um, so uh, as you read the book of Proverbs, which I hope you do on some kind of semi-regular basis anyway, uh, just start thinking about all those, uh, <clears throat> all those Proverbs that are about dealing with the state, dealing with rulers. I think Chris and I had a reason to talk about one the other day. I can't remember why, but one of the Proverbs says, when you are before a ruler, put a knife to your throat. <clears throat> you go, what in the world does that mean? So I'll leave it to you to figure it out. But uh, a lot of interesting Proverbs about a, a believer, a child of God, a person really, and uh, dealing with human government. So when it comes to human government, the first thing we learn is we need to be wise about this. We can't be naive, we can't be flippant, we can't just you know, act out of emotion. We have to sort through, especially all the stuff that's going on nowadays. Um, I know a lot of you, <clears throat> I know I am too for a second time, having to work through the emotion and try to come to some equilibrium about what is going on, the huge change in our government, particularly the past four or five years. Uh, it's hard to absorb that kind of change, particularly when the change is, is drastic, radical, and significant. <clears throat> so we need to be wise. We looked at five New Testament passages. These are key New Testament passages. It was interesting. Uh, we were looking on a, or Gwen was looking at a Facebook, finding, that, uh, finding out that one of her nieces, is it her niece? Yeah, anyway. Nieces are cousins. Anyway, one of those, cousin, um, is actually a Christian and uh, had some really great stuff on her website. Gwen was totally surprised and, um, because of, uh, there was a reason to be surprised, and, uh, but it was happily surprised. And she put these five verses on her website to deal with Christians in the state in the current time. So we're tracking. We're tracking with the Internet. Um, that's good. Now, as we look at those... Just a quick summary, we are free to be witnesses, Matthew 17. We're free, but so that people don't stumble, we pay taxes and we do other things, but ultimately we're free. We're to discern between what is of God and what is of Caesar and give to each one their due. Um, Matthew 22, Romans 13, of course, the, the uh, sort of Magna Carta of uh, government, that government is from God. And uh, if you resist it, you're resisting God and you're to, you're to obey government for two reasons. One, so that you don't get whacked by the government. And number two, so that you can keep a good conscience before God. Those are important items there. Uh, in Titus, and we'll be looking at Titus again, I think if there's one of these passages I would want to put in my pocket, if it was the only passage I could take with me, it would be Titus chapter 3. Because it's very succinct and it just wraps everything up. And a few verses before, it says, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. A few verses after says, you also were once full of sin, remember that. And in the middle, it says, you know, obey, uh, you know be, be, subject yourself to rulers, be a good citizen, and be considerate for things concerning all men. Be a good neighbor. And I think, in, particularly for us in America, where debating politics is sort of a, you know, an American game or sport, um, we can forget that being a good neighbor is really important. <clears throat> in the New Testament. We're to be witnesses for Jesus. Um, so anyway, and then the show honor and respect. First Peter just kind of sums everything up again using the same terms and phrases, and it's just a really good passage. 
So those, are the, those were the verses on <clears throat> government that we have gone through uh, slowly but surely. We will be, and just to remind you, we will be dealing with other things uh, about government, civil disobedience, self-defense. I know the questions, a lot of the questions basically shake out to this, and I think most of you realize by now, you know, should we wear masks or not might be a, a, a relevant question. Well, you know, there's nothing from God says you have to wear a mask, and, <clears throat> you know, the state of South Carolina says wear a mask, but I think we all feel it's more of a suggestion because not a lot of people enforce it. And so you're basically left with, okay, I'm going to do my own thing, but there are consequences. Just remember that. Um, so there's civil disobedience when things get more serious, when they start saying, if you don't get a COVID shot, if they do, they may or may not. If you don't get a COVID shot, you know, you can't fly on airplanes, you can't do this. Well, it's, you know, it's not a matter of obeying the government. They don't really have the right to come in and stick something in your arm. They just don't. But on the other hand, you know, there's consequences to it. So your civil disobedience um, is going to carry consequences. And most of the questions we got is really those issues. You know, if government tells you to do something they don't have a right to tell you, and you don't want to do it, and God doesn't tell you to do it necessarily, well, then it's up to you, and are you going to, are you going to accept consequences for civil disobedience? So these, these, these things we'll be looking at. <clears throat> we started doing the big picture, and the reason for this big picture is two books of the Bible directly address the circumstances we're now coming to in our country, at least if we continue in the trajectory we're on. There's going to be a ton of persecution at some point. Might be five years from now, might be 50 years from now. Nobody knows. We don't know how it will go. Um, we've seen the world come up to the brink of destruction and then go back from it. World War I, World War II, things like that. So we don't know, but the way the trajectory's going, it's not looking good, and so two books of the Bible we need to know are Daniel and the book of Revelation. Both of those books of the Bible speak to our current circumstance that we're in in terms of a government that is moving further and further into totalitarianism. So we may be under that one day. <clears throat> Um, so those two books speak, but in order to appreciate those books, we have to understand some things, and in particular, the kingdom of God. So we started last week looking at the paradigm for the kingdom of God in the Bible. And there's this, some of you may have been asking, I tried to answer a little bit last week, Chris always reminds me, you need to tell everybody why we're doing this, so I'm doing it. Um, so mom calls me up. <laughs> no, he's just seen... Seen from a different angle than I am, and that's, always why there, that's why there's at least two of us, if not more. Uh, but why focus on the kingdom of God? And again, my answer is this. To understand the book of Daniel, the book of Revelation, you have to have an appreciation of the kingdom of God. But there's also some other reasons to uh, understand the kingdom of God. I've got a little list here. How many times in the New Testament do you think the kingdom of God is referred to? Seventeen. Anybody else? 160 times, okay? That's a big number. Kingdom of heaven and that too. Kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, yeah, they're, they're synonymous. Um, yeah, 160 times. That's a lot. I, I, was, I, was expecting, I was expecting more than 17, but I wasn't expecting 160. I knew, it was, I knew it was in key places, so it was significant. But 160 times, and here's just a few verses. Repent. For the kingdom of God is at hand, or kingdom of heaven is at hand. Those are interchangeable. Why are you supposed to repent? This is John the Baptist, Matthew 3. Why are you supposed to repent? Kingdom of heaven is here, okay? Matthew 4, 17. From that time began Jesus to preach and to say, repent. 
for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Why are you supposed to repent, according to John the Baptist? Why are you supposed to repent, according to Jesus Christ? I mean, that in itself just like should settle why we should you know, be concerned about what is the kingdom of God. Uh, Matthew 4.23, Jesus went about in all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom, healing all manner of disease and all manner of sickness. Matthew 5.3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Wow. Poor in spirit, what's your reward? The kingdom of heaven. It's amazing. Blessed are they that have been persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What are you supposed to start out? You say, our Father art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Okay. But seek first what? Another parable, he said before them, saying, the kingdom of heaven is like, seven times we're told, the kingdom of heaven is like, Matthew 13 and another verse later. Matthew 25, 34, then shall the king say unto him, that is on, them that is on his right hand, come ye blessed of my father, inherit what? Kingdom. The kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Luke 10, 11, <clears throat> Jesus sort of brushed the dust off his feet and he says, even the dust of your, he's telling us to bust the dust off our feet like he did, even the dust from your city that cleaves to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near you. This is gospel preaching to Gentiles. The kingdom of God has come near you. But he, knowing their thoughts, said unto them, every kingdom, oh, never mind that. <clears throat> Yet seek his kingdom, and all these things shall be added unto you. That's in Luke. Luke 12, fear not, little flock, for it's your father's good pleasure to give you what? All right, good. I'll probably stop there. <laughs> We need to know what the kingdom of God is, don't we? It is like core to Christianity. And in the last 150 years, what do you think has been one of the most confused topics, at least in the theological world? The kingdom of God. It is debated, it back and forth, you go crazy, it involves all the stuff like dispensationalism and covenant theology and, and all those things. So the kingdom of God being so critical and vital because it's like our inheritance, it's everything to us, and yet it's one of the most debated and confused topics. And it doesn't need to be like most of the debates, by the way, in theology. It doesn't really need to be. Um, <clears throat> but uh, we'll, we'll move on from there. So we're focusing on the kingdom of God. And last week we dealt with what is the paradigm of the kingdom. And we looked, as you all know, we'll always go back to Genesis. Why not start there? Why start in the middle when you can start at the beginning? Um, then God said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. Man is the image of God, and this is important to understanding the kingdom of God. And we're given dominion. The human race is given dominion over the fish, over the birds, over the cattle, over the, all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. That's important. We're given dominion. And so this, this idea of the paradigm of the kingdom of God, first of all, in Genesis 1.26, that starts everything, that defines everything, that lays the foundations for everything. The two things about the human race Adam and Eve and all that come through them, the two things are we are in the image of God and we're given dominion. That last part is left off. Most of us, we live in a generation where when you talk about what is man, that definition does come out. You're in the image of God. Right. My generation, that was not, not something that rolled off everybody's tongue. It does in yours and that's a good thing. But we need to embrace also that we were given dominion because without that, you can't understand the kingdom of God. Because what is a kingdom about? It's about rule and reign, isn't it? 
It's about government, our very topic we're talking about. Genesis 5, 1 through 3, we looked at that to understand that God again is said to make Adam and Eve in the likeness, named them man together, so to say Adam, uh, to cover the human race, male and female, is a fine thing. God does that and specifically states it. Um, When Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of his son in his own likeness and according to his image, and he named him Seth. The difference between Adam is where did Adam get his, his image of God from? God. Get some dust, breathe life, image of God. Where did Seth get his image of God from? Adam. So Adam got his image by direct creation. The rest of us, all the rest of us, get our image by procreation. And that's important. And if you ever wonder what Romans 5, 12 through 21 is all about, just look here. This is where some of it comes from. So there's this procreation in the image of God. And again, this is foundational understanding of the kingdom of God. And you'll, uh, you know, if you weren't here last week, I'll tie it together in just about five seconds. Psalm 8. Psalm 8 celebrates man as the image of God against this backdrop of a vast celestial array of sun and moon. What is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man, you take care of him. This question is asked by the psalmist. And answer number one is, yet you've made him a little lower than God. You crown him with glory and honor. He's in the image of God. It's the psalmist's way of celebrating the image of God. And the second answer is, you make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Man has dominion. So this idea that we must incorporate both image and dominion is not Steve's idea. It's Psalm 8's idea. And so always have that in your mind. And so we celebrate the image of God, Psalm 8. We celebrate the dominion of man over the creation of God, Psalm 8. And that, those are the components of the kingdom of God. Without all of those components, you do not have God's definition. So the definition of the kingdom of God that we see in the Garden of Eden, the very beginning of things, it is the reign of God through an image-bearing son of God as the pattern for an image-bearing humanity of God having dominion over the creation of God. That is the kingdom of God. And some of you might be thinking, gosh, have I heard that before in the New Testament? Ephesians chapter one through three, does it talk about stuff like this? Does it talk about a new humanity? Does it talk about a dominion not only over the earth but over the heavens and the earth? Yes, it does. And that's why this paradigm, once we see that this paradigm overlaid on the new covenant, takes things into the stratosphere. Same components, except instead of just the earth, it's the heavens. So relinquishing the kingdom of God, we just saw quickly Adam and Eve aligned themselves with Satan, Genesis 3. They chose to obey Satan, listen to Satan instead of the word of God. Uh, Genesis 3.15, God declares a victorious seed is going to come and undo those works of Satan. In Genesis chapter 6, we see that Satan had said, well, you know, when you, when you eat of this tree, you'll become as gods. And what do we see instead? We see they become corrupt. They become like him, dark and corrupt. And the earth is full of corruption and violence. And so the first attempts at, at human government is just nothing but thuggery, despotism, exploitation, evil. And so God has to, has to completely flood the whole earth. And God establishes in Genesis 9, 5 through 6 that, again, it states that man is the image of God. And if man is killed by an animal or a person, then that animal or person must also be killed. 
Government is instituted by God not to be a permanent fixture in the human race, but to be a temporary fixture in the human race because of sin, to preserve life on the earth, to preserve law and order, so that there's at least some kind of half-reasonable framework within which human beings can transact the business of life and God can transact the business of the history of redemption. And so this Noahic covenant preserves the earth so that Genesis 3.15 can be fulfilled. But no sooner Adam and Eve, or rather Noah and his family off the ark and they start multiplying and we get the Tower of Babel, back to it, back to rebellion, this renewed rebellion against God and God comes down and says, not gonna happen yet, not gonna happen yet. And so he, he disperses them. There's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob where God now starts to have the promise of the kingdom and we didn't, we've been looking at that uh, in other places, so we didn't look at it last week. We did look at this one uh, sort of uh, prophecy in Genesis chapter 50 about the tribe of Judah, the line of the tribe of Judah. Uh, Gen- uh, Revelation chapter five comes directly from that. Jesus gains his identity in the book of Revelation from this passage. And it's a very important passage because it's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, now it's Judah through whom the seed of the woman is gonna come. And then we just sort of introduce David by seeing his anointed and anointing by Samuel in 1 Samuel 16. So this morning we begin with the Davidic covenant. Chris, you want to pray? Sure. Father, thank you for your word as always. And we pray that as um, we look into the Davidic covenant, um, Lord, we'll see the glory in it all. That this, is, um, this is where history is heading in David's day, and, um, and Lord, it's, it's heading toward the reign of your son, and Lord, now we live in that, we experience that, and, and uh, so Lord, just help us to understand it, and uh, give Steve the ability to articulate it, and, um, and just give us hearts to appreciate it all. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. <clears throat> amen. Second Samuel 7, if you haven't turned there, do so. Second Samuel 7 is a I'm going to go through this somewhat quickly because there's some of 2 Samuel 7 that is not really relevant, and because of time, I'm just going to sort of uh, deal with the highlights. But in 2 Samuel 7, it starts out with where, uh, verses 1 through 3, where David <clears throat> says, man, I want to build a house for God. David has some leisure time on his hands. He starts cooking up plans to build a temple. And Nathan thinks it's a good idea and personally endorses this idea. So here's two men of God cooking up an idea and being okay with an idea because it sounds really good, right? And there's nothing wrong with that. And sometimes we cook up some really really good ideas, but they aren't always from the Lord. Just remember that. This is one of those times where two good men of God, two significant men of God, came up with an idea that looked really good to them, but it just wasn't the thing God wanted to do. Now it came about when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest on every side from all his enemies that the king said to Nathan the prophet, see now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells within tent curtains. Nathan said to the king, go, do all this in your, in your mind for the Lord is with you. Well, the Lord was with him, but not to do this. The next thing, you, you have God responding and I'm kind of putting my notes first here because the the passage gets a bit intricate, and it just, God is basically saying, did I ever ask you to build me a house? This is kind of a big deal. You know, this isn't David, you know, maybe I'm gonna, you know, 
conquer some enemies along the road here as I'm going to the Philistines. It isn't that. It isn't like, okay, I'll just you know, mop up a few things in here and there. This is like changing the whole structure of God's relationship to Israel. We're going to build a temple. I mean, this is a big deal, okay? <clears throat> and so God sort of uh, uh, lets David know, but in the same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan saying, you guys have blown it. Go and say to my servant David, thus says the Lord, are you, are you the one who should build me a house to dwell in? For I've not dwelt in a house since the day I brought up the sons of Israel from Egypt, even to this day. But I've been moving about in a tent, even in a tabernacle. Wherever have I gone with all the sons of Israel, did I speak a word with one of the tribes of Israel, which I commanded to shepherd my people, Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Okay? So David had big plans, but only rose as high as what? Cedar. And he thought that was going to be a good thing. God had way bigger plans, you see. Um, but... Uh, so David has this sort of minimal, minimalist thinking. He's wanting to do something for God, but it's a, of such huge magnitude. God intervenes and says, hey, it's up to me to define and manage this, not you. But then God says, hey, I have and will continue to make you a great name. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture and from following the sheep to be a ruler of my people Israel, and so on and so on. And I will continue to do that, and at the end, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. And there's some important stuff in there, but not for our purposes. Then God turns around, he says, okay, you wanted to build me a house, but I'm going to let you know I'm going to build you a house. And in this sense, house means family, means dynasty. Uh, So God is going to build David a dynasty. The Lord also declares unto you, 2 Samuel 7, 11, that the Lord will make a house for you, when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I mean, how many of you think of the day you're going to die and be no more in this world? This is just interesting that God says, hey, there's a day coming. I know when it's coming. You don't, but I do. And when that day finally arrives, your purposes in this world, you're serving me, your faithfulness, you're honoring me, it's going to continue on. It's going to live on. I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you, someone from your own seed, and I will establish his kingdom. Well, there's this, uh, God is going to continue and he's going to say, I'm going to establish this throne forever. The passage can be a little confusing because God is talking about two individuals in the future, an immediate fulfillment in Solomon, but beyond that, an ultimate fulfillment in the Messiah. So as you read the passage, you have to sort through it. Um, I'm not going to have the whole passage here. It's pretty long. But the points are, the salient points is, he shall build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. So this is a culminating accomplishment. He's going to build a house for my name. And it's going to be a permanent kingdom. And so we have this promise in 2 Samuel where David now becomes one of the significant individuals in the history of redemption. He becomes a paradigm for all of the future kingdom of God. And as we have been reading in, or at least uh, referring to in Matthew uh, chapter 1 in that genealogy, the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of who? David, the son of Abraham, those two men are pivotal and core to the history and framework of redemption. 
All right, so we have looked at that, and that is the basis of what we're going to say today. It is the basis of the kingdom of God. Just think about it. We're dealing with now. In the history of redemption, we've come through uh, Joshua. We've come through Judges, where there was no king, no strong central government, and the decay that that brings to a social order. And we've come through to this point where we are now seeing a kingdom being established. Saul was a failure. The people wanted Saul. Saul was a failure. Um, And David now is God's pick, and now things are going to move forward. So as we look at this promise to David, this Davidic covenant, one of the five great covenants in Scripture, as we look at this, I want us to consider three psalms. Many of you are familiar with these psalms. We've gone over Psalm 110 and Psalm 2 and Psalm 22 in the past year and a half. We've referred to them, Psalm 110 in detail. But I want us to just look at them again and to see that these three psalms structure the Davidic covenant and its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Now, when did David live? Anybody know? You should try to always have a time frame in your mind because things are historically related in the Old Testament. I I just do this. Okay, if I'm going to do the time frame of Genesis, creation was on or about 4,000 B.C., give or take. There are lots of debates by science about that, but that's their problem. I already know what happened. Um... It's about 4,000 B.C. you have creation, according to the dating. Around 2,500 B.C., about 1,500 years later, really 1,656 years later. But if you just want to just have a good framework, about 1,500 years later, we have the flood. And then about 500 years after that, about 2,000 B.C., you have Abraham. It's probably more like 1870, something like that, but 2,000 is good enough. So creation at 4,000, the flood at 2,500, Abraham at uh, 2,000, And then you have Moses about 1500 B.C. And then you have David about 1000 B.C. So there's kind of like 500 year increments. That's what I try to put it in. So David's 1000 B.C. He's he's 500 years after Moses. Right? Can any of you comprehend 500 years? How long has America been around? Yeah. Can you comprehend 500 years? That's just a long time. All right? And, And David... <clears throat> is given this covenant in 2 Samuel 7. And David writes three psalms, more than that. There's Psalm 89, Psalm 45. I don't know if that's by David, but it's certainly talking about the king. David writes all these psalms referring back to 2 Samuel. As a matter of fact, in Acts, it's kind of interesting. I didn't have this on my slides. I kept wondering. I knew I'd missed a slide, and that was it. Uh, Acts, turn there real quickly, if you will, to Acts chapter 2, just, just to see that that the scriptures talk about David referring to his covenant that God made with him, and he writes psalms about it. Acts chapter 2, verse 25, you have Psalm 16, about the resurrection of the Christ. In verse 29, Peter says, Brethren, I'm saying to you freely that the patriarch David, that he's both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. So the resurrection can't be about David because he's dead and buried and still there. So it had to be about somebody else. Verse 30, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins he would set one upon his throne. What covenant is that? The Davidic covenant. So here's Peter saying that Things are written in the Bible because people were thinking about something. Verse 31, he foreseeing this covenant, 
this second Samuel 7 event, he foreseeing this spoke of the resurrection of the Christ. So Psalm 16 was written in view of what? What was David thinking about when he wrote Psalm 16 about the resurrection of the Christ? 2 Samuel 7. David's going, gosh, God made this covenant with me. It's so awesome. You read the rest of 2 Samuel 7, you see David, it's like his heart is full. This, these are big deals that have happened to him. He knows this is forever. David sees, I mean, the Holy Spirit, he's got a vision, God is speaking vision to Nathan. And Nathan conveys that vision to David, and David is caught up in vision at later times in his life as he reflects back on this covenant God made with him. And he writes Psalm 16 about the resurrection of the Christ. Verse 32, this Jesus did God raise up, whereof we are all witnesses. Verse 33, being therefore at the right hand of God, exalted and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, has poured forth this which you now see and hear. And we'll be getting into that another time. But it's just so awesome that Jesus being at the right hand of God, Jesus being raised from the dead, is said to be the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. Now, is there a a thinking in American theology, at least in the last hundred or so years, that says that fulfillment is in another place? Haven't you often heard that there's going to be a millennium and that's when the Davidic covenant's going to be fulfilled? That's when Jesus is going to sit on the throne of Israel? Isn't that what's said? Is that what David believed? Is that how David saw 2 Samuel? And so we have to understand that David is writing not just Psalm 16, but he's writing Psalm 22. He's writing Psalm 110. He's writing Psalm 2, knowing that God had sworn to him with an oath that he would set up upon his throne and that he would be exalted where? Next. He being where? Right hand of God. So let's look at these Psalms and see how in 1000 BC, 300 years before the prophets, folks. See, people want to just jump all over the Bible and they forget that you can't bounce to a prophet here and a Psalm there. You've got to find out when were these things actually spoken because the prophets write from the foundation of the Psalms. They just don't pull things out of the air. They are elaborating and expounding and Uh, bringing more detail and more specificity and more color to these foundational covenants and promises that have gone before. And you must interpret the prophets and understand the prophets with that foundation in view. So we have these three psalms. These are some of the most quoted psalms in the New Testament. We have Psalm 22. It's quoted 12 times. Psalm 110, quoted three times, explicitly alluded to 17 times, and its imagery is used 11 times for a total of 31 times at least. Psalm 2 itself is quoted seven times and has six allusions. The New Testament is framed by these psalms. They are just incredibly important to hear, to understand. But as Chris prayed, the most important thing is to have Jesus Christ himself fill your soul with his present glory. Remember what Moses said, Lord, show me your glory or I don't want to go anywhere. And that's how we should be. Lord, show me your glory. 
Because an intellectual grasp of these things, as good as it may be, does not begin to compare to the love of God shed abroad in our hearts and the glory of Christ shed abroad in our hearts in view of these psalms. So I'm going to go through them quickly because I want us just to see a big picture of it. It's for you to read them and pray to the Lord to seal them to your mind and heart and to make them the framework of your entire thinking of the kingdom of God. They should be so. So Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is structured by four basic strophes. It's really a drama. I think on, there was an Easter that we sort of tried to do the drama. We had our brother Clint here who was always with his, with his rumbling voice was good at uh, speaking some of the things in this psalm. Um, but there's four sort of sections. There is opposition in <clears throat> verses 1 through 3. There is a declaration of God in verses 4 through 6. There is a coronation of the Son in 7 through 9. And then there is a proclamation and slash exhortation in verses 10 through 12. So Psalm 2, 1 through 3. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointing saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast their cords from us. So in this drama, second Psalm, if you're going to understand the Psalms, you've got to understand Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. They're right at the very beginning because they're trying to tell you how to read the book of Psalms. The first one is you've got to live by these words and you've got to be holy and you've got to love God. And you've got to consciously throw out the counsel of the world and embrace the counsel of God. If you're going to benefit from the Psalms, you've got to read Psalm 1 and know that must sort of orient you to how you're going to read these Psalms. And the second one is these Psalms are all about the Spirit of Christ, the coming of Messiah, and everything that surrounds them, even in personal experience, ultimately finds its meaning and significance in the Messiah. And here, why do the nations rage in an uproar? Have we seen this nations being against God before already? Did we look at that? Anywhere? Anybody? Tower of Babel? Yeah. See, Tower of Babel just wasn't one event. Oh, that was nice. Done. No. The world has been trying to rebuild that Tower of Babel any way, any place, any time it can. And here are the nations raging against God and against his anointed. And the language that the psalmist captures to sort of capture the rebellion of sinful men who, when they can gather together, will always be against God. Let us tear God's fetters from us, cast away their cords from us. We do not want God telling us what to do. And that is the world. Go up to somebody today and tell them that fornication is sin, and what are they going to tell you? How many programs do you have to switch on on TV to have people say hello, hop in bed, and then start a relationship? And in the book of Revelation, fornication is said to be what? One of the major, grievous sins of the human race. And here's the human race saying, God's fetters of my sexuality will not bind me. I'm going to tear those fetters off. Yeah, and if I could just say just something real quick. All the discussions in our culture right now about gender identity, transgender, all that kind of stuff, redefining the, uh, really redefining what gender is, 
It's all here in verse 3. This is the root of it all. It's trying to get them to redefine existence, reality, sexuality, gender, all of these kinds of things. This is them wanting to throw off the fetters and just been seeing that more even this week, doing a little bit of research. And it's so sad, even homosexuals coming out and saying the trans stuff is, is wicked. And, uh, I mean, you know, you've gone pretty far if that's what's happening. But, um, but it gets deeper and deeper. Amen. I was going to go there, but I... Anyway. I'm glad you did. I say, I was not going to go there, I should say. I'm glad you did. The nation's determined to throw off the rule of God. So there's, there's the picture. So you're going to get Steve's little icons here or whatever. Sorry. This is what you get. If you want a better one, get Matt up here. What can I tell you? Um, so Psalm 2, you read those first three verses, and you get God. You get his anointed, which is what Mashiach, Mashiach Messiah means. In the Hebrew, Mashiach means anointed. And you get opposition. These are components of this psalm. Verses four through six. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, but as for me, I've already installed my king upon my holy mountain, Zion. So God responds with both laughter at their futility and anger, just anger, righteous anger at their defiance. God counters sovereignly as he declares the enthronement of his king on Zion. And it's put in the already happened tense, I've already installed my king upon my holy hill of Zion. And there's nothing you can do about it. And the world will rage against it. And the world will chafe against it. And the world will never want to hear that everybody is accountable to Jesus Christ, the Son of God. What's that in Philippians? Don't we have one? We sing the song, every knee shall and every tongue shall confess. It's a quote, I believe, out of Isaiah, a partial quote, and applied to Jesus. They don't want that. But God is like, you know, I've already done this. I've already set my king on my holy hill. So, if you were to add a little component to it, this Messiah, this Messiah is on Mount Zion. All right? So if you're of the persuasion that there's some thousand-year period later on in history where all this is going to occur, you're going to be thinking, well, you know, Jesus is going to come down from heaven and be on Mount Zion over in Palestine and be over there and we'll all get free trips then. We don't have to pay to get trips to Jerusalem. By the way, I wish there was a millennium. I'd love to sleep for a thousand years. I am tired all the time. So Zion is added to the mix. That's why I started going through Zion. It's like, I know you guys say, what is Steve doing? He's being so tedious. I'm like, man, if you want to understand some things in the Bible, then you've got to be tedious at first. You've got to get Zion. So I'm not taking you down the tedious route, but understand Zion. Remember, that's the place where God dwells. He's chosen it. David went to the Mount of, to the Mount of Zion. It's a hill in Jerusalem. The original, uh, you know, the, David was, was uh, built his city, the city of David. Zion is that place where the reign of God is manifest. Verse 7 through 9, I will surely tell a decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today have I begotten you. You are my son. Have we heard that anywhere in the New Testament? You are my son. Okay. Those words coming from heaven, that direct speech from heaven is borrowed right from this psalm. 
or should I say, it fulfills what this psalm anticipated. God was looking for the day when these words would come from heaven. He would utter them from heaven over his son in whom he is well pleased. You are my son. This day have I begotten you. Then the son speaks, ask of me and, well again speaks, I ask of me and I will surely give the nations in your inheritance. Here's what God my father said to me, ask of me, I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. That language comes from where? Abrahamic covenant. So the Davidic covenant being fulfilled in the Messiah is also fulfilling the Abrahamic covenant. All coming under the banner of the what new covenant. Okay. And the very ends of the earth for your possession, you shall break them with a rod of iron. You will shatter them like earthenware. The word shatter, what does that, what does that speak? What's that, that connotation of shatter? but also absolute power. This is an irresistible power of God. And all we have to do is look in the Old Testament and watch God beat the stuff out of a country, an entire kingdom, and destroy it by raising up another kingdom. Another power happens. If he needs to, he flood. Flood the earth. There's power. God, God is usually very restrained when he does things, but it's sure and it's certain and it's sovereign and it's an absolute power, whatever he determines. But here the Messiah is wielding this power because he is the eternal son. And he's going to break the nations with a rod of iron. He's going to shatter them like a pot. I don't know if, if you were a kid, some, some, when I was a kid, sometimes I just loved to break bottles. I don't know why. Just boys do that, I guess. I don't know. Just smash, you know. And uh, well, that's what's happening here, just this smashing. So, if we start to bring the components of what we've just read, we've got a son, that's added. We've got nations for your inheritance, so the people of God, that's added. And we've got authority and power. So our picture starts to fill out a little bit. Psalm 2, 10 through 12. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son that he may not become angry and you perish in the way for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all those that take refuge from him. So when someone is in a state of rebellion against God, whether it be a person that's just sort of uh, marginalized or unknown or whatever, just a, a normal person, whether it be a king, then no matter who a person is, God does not respect persons. If that person is in a state of rebellion against God, as Jesus said, their time is always ready. The wrath of God may at any time say, okay, I'm done. I'm done with your defiance. I'm done with your rebellion. I'm done with your wickedness. I'm done. The counterpart is turn from the wickedness, turn from the rebellion, turn from sin and take refuge in this mighty one with the rod of iron. And so we have here this proclamation. By the way, that's supposed to be a, some kind of a cheerleader's horn or something. It's the best I can do. I got, all I got is Vizio, folks. And uh, Google shut me down because you can't pull images off anymore. They all, they all come with little blurs and stuff on them. So there's this element of proclamation. And here's Psalm 2. And there's a picture of Psalm 2. You have this kingdom of God. 
where God the Father installs God the Son as Messiah on Zion. And it is this reign of the Messiah that brings into being the people of God from all nations, fulfilling the Abrahamic covenant as the gospel is proclaimed to all nations to take refuge in him. And this will happen in a continuing state of opposition from a wicked world. That is the kingdom of God. We'll come with Messiah. Psalm 110, the heavenly reign of Messiah. There is the coronation of the Messiah, verse 1. There is the dominion of the Messiah, stated, verses 2 and 3. There is the mediation of the Messiah, verse 4. And there's the judgment that Messiah brings on the nations, verse 5 through 7. Psalm 110.1, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Sit at my right hand. And you're to stay there until your enemies are vanquished. Made your footstool a picture, sort of imagery of the Old Testament. So we have Psalm 110 and just from verse 1, There's opposition. Your enemies are going to become your footstool. There are enemies that you have to conquer. You are going to be at my right hand while you bring through human history, throughout history, these enemies to bear until there is a final consummation where their enemies are fully, finally, and forever vanquished. But the one who is at the right hand of God is also David's Lord. Jesus used this passage, this very verse, to show them he was more than just a man and more than just a seed of David. He was the eternal son and he's Messiah. Just just one verse and you collect this information, but more than that, what are you also shown? Where is all this happening? Where is this Messiah going to reign from? See, folks that want him to reign in Palestine on earth are not understanding this psalm. This psalm says he's going to reign from where? From what place? The right hand of God. Where's the right hand of God? Is it in Palestine? It's in heaven. This Messiah is going to be raised from the dead, as we will see in Psalm 22, and he will be brought to the right hand of God, and there he will remain until he has, with mighty power, brought all of human history to a final place. And the wickedness is done, and sin is finished. And Satan is destroyed and his works are gone forever. Messiah and mighty power bringing into being that ultimate and eternal kingdom of God in a new heavens, in a new earth. All of that is in that verse. Psalm 110 verse 2, The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion. This connects us with Psalm 2, a rod of iron. And God's saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Gosh, we don't like that, do we? We want the Lord to take our enemies away, don't we? Lord, I got enemies. I got challenges. I got all this. Just let me get past it. Let me grit and my, you know, bite my tongue, grit my teeth until it's done. It's like, no. You have to succeed in the midst of enemies. You have to succeed in the middle of trials. Your goal is not to have those things absent. Your goal is to succeed while they are there. And that's why if you accomplish the wrong goal of getting rid of the trial, guess what? You know, just, you can check this box. You're going to see that trial again. 
It's best to deal with it the first time. Just a, a word of advice from someone who always tries to get out of trials. It doesn't work, and you're going to see it again. But Jesus is to rule in the midst of his enemies. The Messiah is to rule in the midst of his enemies. Is that not total control? Not just throwing your enemies out. Now I can rule. It's ruling when there's opposition everywhere. And that is what Jesus has been doing for 2,000 years. And he's doing it right now. In the midst of enemies around this globe, Jesus is saving people from their sin in spite of the attempts to keep that from happening by powerful governments, some of the most powerful we've ever seen, armed with technology that we've, the world has never known before. And they cannot thwart the purposes of God. The Messiah rules in the midst of his enemies. And the Messiah is going to have a people. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power, whether you're in America coming to Jesus to serve him, whether you're in China coming to Jesus to serve him. The people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. Notice what is, this kingdom is about. Rule, reign, and power. People think that Christianity is a religion. That is like so off the mark. Christianity is about the reign of the Son of God from heaven with a rod of iron. That is Christianity. And that is why the world hates us. In holy array from the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. These people, these holy followers, these faithful followers will emerge and be refreshing like the morning dew. And it's like Jesus said, you know, how's a person born of God? You know, look at the wind. You don't know where it comes from, where it goes. You just hear the sound of it. There's this mystery to the new birth. And there's this mystery to how the dew forms from the naked eye. Sure, we know the science of it, but go out there and watch it and see what happens. Uh, me and my grandkids, uh, over the past year, you've been able to see Jupiter, Mars, Saturn. And uh, so we're sitting there, we ride bikes, and I plan it just at dusk, and so we sit there and we watch, see who's the first one who can see Jupiter, or really Mars, it's the first one that really peeks out. And you're sitting there watching, 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 and you blink your eye and you look back again, and it's there, and you went, ah, I missed it. How did that happen? You just watch the stars come out. You don't know how it happens. It's like the dew, they just emerge. And that is how Christians come into being all over this world. And so the themes, again, we have. We have Zion now. Zion is the Zion in heaven. The Zion of Psalm 2 is this Zion, not a Zion on earth, but a Zion in heaven and the people of God, the dew of his youth. Psalm 110, verse 4, he, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. We all love this, the priesthood of Jesus the priesthood of Jesus that is like so core to our salvation that is everything to us gets one line in the Old Testament. Isn't that amazing? See, there's some lines in the Old Testament like, you know, going through the genealogies, like that's nice, that's nice, okay. It's important, it's there. But now you get one line. One line is the foundation of why you will get to heaven. Why you are now preserved why you have access to God. So this is, a, this is not only a Messiah, but it is a Messiah who is a mediator. Verses five through seven, the Lord at your right hand, he will shatter kings. Again, this language, shatter, 
in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. This is partly where the language of the book of Revelation of the judgment of God comes from. He will drink of the brook by the wayside, therefore will he lift up his head. And here we have the rulers of the earth still enraged against God, still arrayed against God, still trying to control the earth and control everybody in it. And that's what's going on. If you wonder, where does the leftist movement come from? Where does totalitarianism come from? Why would someone even want to do that? Why would someone want to control my life? I have a hard enough time controlling my life. Why do they want to take on the job? And do it for a whole nation, for a whole world if they can. It's because... They are energized by Satan. And they are enraged against God. And they're trying like at Babel to create a world, isolated, insulated world order where God is not a part of it. That's what's going on in America today. If all you're looking at is the politics, then you're way, shooting way too low. You're way too small in your vision of what's happening. Satan is at work in America today. The Tower of Babel is being rebuilt in America today. And its design and purpose is to insulate themselves against God and destroy anybody who is for God. Be clear about that. So we have this psalm, this judgment that's going to come from Messiah. So when you start to look at the component parts, there's God, the Son, the Messiah, Zion, a mediator, a people of God, opposition and judgment ultimately on that opposition and the Messiah reigns from heaven. Psalm 22, the suffering and the glory of the Messiah. There's the cross, there's brotherhood, there's the kingdom of God and there are the nations. Psalm 22, one through 21 starts out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we all know that. We all know that those are the words that Jesus uttered on the cross, that we are to go back to this psalm when we read them in, in the gospels and understand what is happening and how Jesus is feeling we have the very intimate thoughts and heart and soul of Jesus enshrined in this 21 verses of this psalm as he's there on the cross laying down his life for his people. So read it. It's important. But for our purposes, we're looking at verse, we'll be looking at other verses. But Psalm 22 establishes this cross, this suffering of the Messiah and we know that happened in 30 AD, so now we got a time frame to all these prophecies, don't we? We know they're going to occur when? 30 AD, okay? 22, verse 22, Psalm 22, verse 22. I will tell of your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him, all you descendants of Jacob. Glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you descendants of Israel. Anybody know where this highlighted part of the verse is quoted, used in the New Testament? Hebrews chapter 2, absolutely. The humanity of, of Jesus, his full humanity is established where it says he is not ashamed to be that we're called his brethren. And this psalm is referenced to anybody know another place in the New Testament where this particular phrase of the psalm? John 17. I have declared to them thy name and will make it known that the love wherewith you love me may be in them and I in them. It's right out of this psalm. There's another place. Jesus risen from the dead and Mary and Martha come and 
They're still confused, still trying to figure out what's happening. What does Jesus say in the end of John 20? Do this or that, but you go and tell my brethren that now I go unto my Father and your Father and my God and your God, one of the most awesome verses in the Bible. That which groups us all together, that the love wherewith you love me may be in them and I in them. You are my brethren, and you, my Father is now your Father. That is the fulfillment of this psalm. When did that occur? 30 A.D., okay? We can root this psalm. There's a, a, a death on a cross and a resurrection that all of it is, is specified in this psalm and framed out. So it's the people of God, but it's the people of God with this particular spin, you are my brethren. The reference there is to Israel and to Jacob. So at least it's the Jews. Psalm 22, verse 28, for the kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over the nations. The event of verse 22, go and tell my brethren, I'm gonna uh, tell of your name to my brethren. That event that established that is the resurrection of the Christ. The abrupt change from suffering to resurrection and glory. Leading the, the people of God in the worship of God. This burning heart desire of Jesus to show us the Father. Well, this is established because the kingdom is the Lord's. It is the kingdom of God that marks that transition from an old covenant of type and shadow to a new covenant of being brethren, having God as Father in a real spiritual way. That is when it happens. The kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over who? The nations. So we get this, this concept, this, this reality that the kingdom of God, which was promised, is now becomes manifest, now becomes a reality in human history. And the brotherhood in Christ that we so love is established in the blood of the Son of God. The last parts of the psalm really focus on some things. All the ends of the earth will remember unto the Lord. All the families of the nations will worship before you. A posterity will serve him and will be told of the Lord into the coming generation. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born that he has performed it. Here we have a worldwide proclamation declaring the righteousness of God. Worldwide. Sound like Romans 3? And so these components added by these verses are the people of God are not only the people of Israel but they are also the nations. For a hundred years, there's been an idea floating in Christendom and had great influence that if you are going to understand the Bible, you must distinguish between Israel and the church. Is that what we read in this psalm? This psalm says exactly the opposite of that idea. It says if you were to understand the kingdom of God, you not, must not understand the separation of those two, but the blending of those two together as the brethren of Jesus Christ. Sometimes you'll hear me say that something like dispensationalism just doesn't have a prayer in the Bible, and it doesn't. The nations and Israel are seen as being brought together as one new humanity in Christ in Psalm 22. In Psalm 2. In Psalm 110. God has always purposed to have one ultimate people of God. 
doesn't mean that the Jews are disenfranchised. It just simply means the Jews are enfranchised in a new humanity in Christ and share it with the nations of the earth. It's all in the Psalms. Okay, yeah. Kids, yeah, go, uh, parents come to your kids. Just, this is just really the end here. Here are the components. God, reign, nations, proclamation. And so if you take these three psalms together, this is what you have. This is the picture you have. They all say the same thing. They all are a composite of the same thing. This is the kingdom of God as David defines it in 1000 B.C. So as we start to look at human government, why are we doing this? Well, here's what I'm trying to get you to do. I mean, our nation's coming unglued. There's no question about it. It is grievous. It is, it is disheartening, to say the least. It can throw you into a panic at times. It does me. When I see some of the things happening, especially recently, I just go, I thought we had 10 years. It looks like we only got 10 minutes. What are you to do then? Get upset? Be like the, I don't know, there's some insurance commercial, all the insurance commercials are entertaining or try to be with the bird with the head in the sand? Or do we look at this? We say Jesus Christ is sovereignly ruling and reigning. Whatever is coming to pass in the earth is coming to pass by his sovereign will. And then my heart and hope should not be here because every government is passing away. Every last government created by human beings is never anything but a temporary fixture. And just like the best of men are men at best, the best of human governments are human governments at best. And that's why they teeter and fall because they are not built on the Messiah. There is only one government of God which is built on a foundation that is said to be forever, and that is the kingdom of God. So is it wrong to get involved in government or politics or whatever? No, it's not wrong, but is it really where you want to put your eggs? Having all your discussions about government, I know you have to work things through. I get it, I do. Also, I just love talking about it when I'm bored because I write a lot of boring software code. So I love discussions sometimes just to feel like I'm alive again. But, you know, those are fine, but where's our heart and our hope? And where's our energy going to be placed? Where are you going to place your energy? This is the only kingdom that will be forever. And it's the kingdom that your Father has given to you. And he's given it to you in a, as a placeholder. You've got it. It's yours. And one day you will fully inherit it and enjoy it. Put your heart, your hope, your joy, your desires in this kingdom. Lord willing, next week we will, uh, having laid the foundations of the Psalms, we'll go to the prophets that take this foundation and elaborate it even more um, so that we can understand the kingdom of God.